chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, last Lord's Day, as we looked at this portion, we considered verses 1 through 11, which Luke brings together two events that deal with the challenge that came to the Lord in relation to the Sabbath and the accusations of religious leaders. And it leads straight then into verse 12, where we're told, let's read from there, Luke 6, verse 12. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. Amen. We'll end our reading there. May the Lord give light as we consider his word together. Let's bow together before the Lord. Father, we thank Thee for what we have enjoyed already this evening. We thank Thee for the praise of Thy people. Lord, may every week that passes, every Lord's Day we are given, may it sweeten our experience of worshiping with the saints. May it help us to anticipate the day when we congregate with all the redeemed of the Lord. There's no place like being with thy people, no place on earth like enjoying the presence of the Lord with the people of God. That is heaven. Lord, we pray that though the world may be very much against the church of Jesus Christ, it's not unusual, and yet it has pleased thee to Bless thy church and give to them a refuge in thyself and to pour out thy blessings upon them as they meet together in the name of Christ. Lord, make this place a sanctuary for souls. Cause it every Lord's Day to be a place of refuge where those that are weary and discouraged may come in and receive sustenance, a word in season, though they be weary, a word that helps them because They need help as they are weary from the heat of the battle and the trials of life. God, we ask that Thou wilt bless us, whatever our need might be. Some need direction. Some need the Lord to to just counsel them through decisions that are before them. Father, I pray that through the Word Thou wilt meet with them and help them. So give the help of the Spirit of God tonight. Draw near to us. And do good to all of thy church. And should there be a lost soul in our midst, may they know the grace of conviction, feeling the weight of their sin. And may they run to Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we read of the Lord Jesus choosing the twelve apostles, it is important for us not to miss the significance of what is going on. You may remember, if you were here, when we dealt with the genealogy that Luke gives us in relation to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that when we dealt with that genealogy, we didn't deal with every name, nor did we just skip over it altogether, but we dealt with three of the individuals there in what I entitled, A Theology of Christ from His Family Line. We looked first at Adam, who's named in the genealogy, and considered Christ's redeemed humanity. We then looked at Abraham, the father of the faithful, and considered Christ's spiritual nationality. And then we looked at David and considered Christ's incomparable royalty. And as we thought about Christ's spiritual nationality, I briefly 
indicated that Jesus Christ is the eschatological fulfillment of national Israel. What I mean by that is that He is the true Israel. We learn this because the prophet Hosea referred back to what God did for His people centuries prior when He's speaking, when He's recording, what He did for the children of Israel when He records in Hosea 11 verse 1, when Israel was a child... Then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Referring, of course, to the deliverance, to the redemption that the children of Israel enjoyed and experienced when God delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh and brought them into a place of freedom to worship him. Matthew's gospel then tells us about Christ as around the incarnation, tells us about his time in Egypt until the death of Herod, and quotes Hosea, 11 verse 1 in Matthew 2 verse 15, where we have recorded for us, and there was, and, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And he takes that portion. He takes that passage that was within the context of Hosea, was looking back to the children of Israel, being drawn out of Egypt and delivered from them. He then applies it to the experience of the Lord Jesus Christ when he finds himself as an infant being driven into Egypt to be saved and preserved. And Matthew applies that and says this is a fulfillment of the prophecy. Israel passed through the Red Sea and entered into a time of temptation in the wilderness. And Luke then, from the genealogy, has shown us also how Christ entered the waters, namely the waters of baptism, and then went into the wilderness to withstand the fiercest temptation. And unlike the children of Israel, he stood fast. There's no murmuring. There's no sin. He is faithful. He is the true Israel. Now, why do I say all of that? Well, just like Israel of old, Jacob, who had 12 sons that became the foundation of the nation of Israel, so Christ, the father of of a new people, as it were, in one sense, chooses 12 apostles who will help lay the foundation of a new Israel. You can't miss that connection when he chooses 12 apostles. It's not insignificant. It's not arbitrary. It's not just 12 because that's a nice round number. There is a pulling together, and I'm not going to spend time and then go through other passages of the Scriptures in the New Testament that pull this together and show the apostles in relation to this whole idea, but it is there. And clearly then in mind there is this this laying of a foundation, men, 12 men assigned, well, you may be better saying 12 offices, one office and 12 men put into this office, that would then lay this foundation as the church would go forward and be under Christ, the Israel of God, as they're called in Galatians chapter 6. And so then when Peter writes as well in his epistle, he's not shy to use language that, that would have been applied to Old Testament Israel and, and refer it to the people he's writing that are Christians in the time in which he pens his epistle. He says, but ye are a chosen generation. That's how Israel saw themselves, a people chosen by the Lord. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. First Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. In Peter's mind, there is a clear correlation And so I say that to you so that you can understand the significance then, without getting into all the details, the significance of the appointment of the twelve. Christ is choosing men. He is appointing twelve to fulfill an office of the apostleship in order that upon the ministry of these men, Judas excluded, though his place would be filled, upon these men, this Israel of God would flourish and grow and reach the ends of the earth. That was the intention, was it not? 
that God would bless Abraham, and out of him would come a nation that would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. But it was never fulfilled through that old Israel. It was, it's fulfilled through this Israel, with Christ as the head leading the way. And so we come then this evening to consider the appointment of the apostles, the appointment of the apostles. And just two main uh, headings here to consider. And the first of them is the master who appointed them. The master who appointed them. We come to verse 12. And it came to pass in those days that he, that's the Lord Jesus, went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. This is not unfamiliar to us if we've been following through the Gospel of Luke. Go back to Luke chapter 4, verse 42. We are told there, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desert place. And the people sought him and came unto him and stayed him, that he should not depart from them. And he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. So he removes himself into desert places, trying to get away. And this becomes more manifest in the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 16, where we read, He withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. It was common for the Lord Jesus to get away from the hustle and bustle, get away from all the pressures of his disciples and those that sought to him for help, to get away and to pray, to try and get time alone. And not time alone simply to put up his feet and rest, but to, to seek to face uh, the, to, to f- seek the face of his Father which is in heaven. And this comes again. Luke is emphasizing this. In chapter 6, verse 12, it comes again. He comes into a place of s- solitude. He went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Now, it struck me, the context of this, and how Luke pulls this all together, because the opening verses here that, of this chapter, what we've already looked at, is Christ being attacked, which again, it goes back into the previous chapters as well. He is, he's been under severe attack and accusation and criticism. And Luke moves us from that criticism, from those accusations, from the, the anger of the religious leaders. Again, look at verse 11. They were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. They are, they are, they are, they are enraged against the Lord Jesus. And they get more and more angry. And Luke then brings us from that scene right into Christ seeking the Father in prayer and then appointing the apostles. And I couldn't miss the striking implications of that on a practical level. Here are these men who are angry at the Lord Jesus. In relation to the beginning of chapter 6, the right observance of the day of rest. He contradicts their established traditions. The religious elite get mad and they begin to commune one with another, verse 11. They start talking among themselves. If they were living today, they would pick up their cell phones. They might write on their blogs and on their social media and tell, try to, try to enlist support for, uh, to, to, to justify their hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they would be doing if they were living today. But how does Jesus respond? What's his response? Luke presents the Lord Jesus in such a way as he just carries on with the work. He has a work to do. He has a commission. He has a mandate. And the last thing he must do is be distracted by all the silly nonsense of sinful men. And so Luke presents the Lord Jesus in this resolution that he must continue engaging with the Father in prayer and continue to build up this kingdom and take forward this ministry and this commission that he had received and was also going to pass on to others to continue. I think that has much in the way of help for us, a great lesson for individual Christians and for churches to ignore the discouragement that sometimes comes to those that seek to apply themselves in the kingdom of Christ, to to ignore the the garbage and the criticism of, of those that try, really, really, they're just doing Satan's work, trying to discourage. And Christ is not going to be sidetracked. He's not going to be distracted by this. There's Luke presents 
the, the resolution of Jesus Christ who, who will not for a second give himself to something that's a waste of time. He has a work to do. And so he does it. There's no spending time debating, no arguing. And it's just, look, we're at the beginnings of this ministry, not too far into it, and there's a work to be done. And I have, while these men reject and these men will not follow, there's some who do. And I'm going to select some of them and prepare them so that they can carry on the work. Speaking generally of humanity and his observations, Dale Carnegie, if you've ever read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, he famously said, any fool can criticize, complain, and condemn, and most fools do. It's true. It's so true. The folly of spending time overanalyzing the lives and works of other people. Just get on with your mission. J.C. Ryle said on Luke 6, We should notice in this passage what excessive importance hypocrites attach to trifles. Yes, that becomes more of an application to the religious. The hypocrite, giving such emphasis to the trifles, of course cannot see the massive problems in their own lives, but can see these little issues that frustrate them in the lives of other people. For the most part, the issue the Pharisees had with the Lord Jesus Christ was was again not just what he was saying or what he was not saying, or what he was doing or what he was not doing. As I indicated this morning, their real problem was the fact that people were listening. And people were giving attention to him. If he had continued in obscurity, they would not be bothered. But it was the vanity of their own highly regarded opinions that demanded a response to Christ's proactive labors against the kingdom of darkness. And instead of communing sinfully like the Pharisees, who communed one with another what they might do to Jesus, verse 12, the next verse goes straight into his communion with God. Beloved, that's how you deal with criticism. That's how you deal when the enemy comes and discourages you, whether it's the voice that comes internally to discourage your heart or whether it's outside attacks that come. That's how you deal with it. You get on with it. For we shall all stand before God. We shall all give an account of ourselves to God. And we have a mission to do, a responsibility before God, regardless of what foolish men will say and do. And when you read verse 12, that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God, does it not raise in your mind the consideration, what is it like to spend a night in prayer? Have you ever done it? Have you ever spent an entire night in prayer? How many blessings do we never learn to enjoy because we never even attempted to do it once in our lives? Have there been occasions in your life that would call you to a night of prayer? I would hazard a guess, yes. (laughs) Is it any wonder he had disciples? There was a magnetism to him because he walked with such a different spirit. He spake as one having authority, not as the scribes. What a different one he was. And we're told in verse 17, we didn't read there, we're told that there was a great company, there was a company of his disciples. And it's from this company that he chooses the twelve It's from that company of those who committed themselves to be disciples of Jesus of Nazareth that he chooses the twelve 
And I wondered, well, what, what was he praying about? What was he praying prior to the choice of each of these men? Have you ever thought of that? And so and it seems as if even there's a pattern that develops from the life of Jesus Christ in the early church because when, when they're choosing and they're sending men out, they give themselves to prayer and fasting. You, you can see that pattern through the book of Acts. This is something that they do. They, they fast and pray and then lay hands on those that are set apart. And did they follow then the Lord Jesus Christ in that? Is, is, is this such an, the example that stuck out in their mind? And they thought, if, if we're going to be about the business of, of choosing men, setting men apart in various aspects of ministry, we need to wait before God for the fine season, a time set apart for one purpose, that God would lead and guide in this decision. How haphazardly do we enter into great decisions? The Lord Jesus did not. Perhaps he wrestled over the weakness of the men, praying for strength for them. Maybe he wrestled over the choice of Judas Iscariot knowing that he had a devil. Maybe there was a battle going on. We don't know for sure. But he chose 12. And another thing that struck me as I thought about this is, is how this company that were around him, and the, these 12 specifically, that gave themselves over to the Lord Jesus Christ, they, they, they didn't sign up for a course. You know, they didn't, they didn't kind of say, I, I would like a course and, because I'm interested in, in, in information. They gave themselves because of a draw to the man. Oh, the, the truth plays a part. The way he spoke, the way he preached, all of that played a part, but, but there was a draw to who he was. They signed up to be disciples of a man, not students of a course. As I thought about that, I thought about how, how much that applies in the work of the church. Even in relation to our children, if we want our children to follow us, it can't merely be by the imparting of truth. There must be something about our personalities, about how we live the truth how it shapes our lives, how it governs our decisions, how it causes us to live on a, on a different plane than what is ordinary. And you look at the great outpourings of the Spirit of God and the times when God was pleased to, to raise up a generation that would know God. Inevitably, there, there are those that, that... I mean, they're saying the same things. It's the same truth being taught. You try, to, you try to analyze you know, from one Bible college or one seminary to another. Similar things are being taught, but, but there's something on the men that are teaching. How much then we need for spirit-filled men to lead in our own denomination in the training of another generation preachers. It's not enough just to have men there. They have to know the power of God. When you do that, you don't have to try to sell the course as being better than other courses. You don't have to try and say how, you know, what sets you apart in terms of we have this class and we spend this amount of time and these hours and, and this subject. And No, no, because really, really the hearts are drawn out towards those that are most Christ-like. It's very convicting. So he's there. Continuing all night in prayer to God. This is the master 
And what is encouraging is that he chooses unfinished men. They're far from the finished article. We'll see that just in a cursory fashion in just a moment. But we will see that very not really that many of these men leave a significant mark on the pages of Scripture. Most of them receive very little attention, but they, they play their part. And the genius, if we can use that term, is not in the men. It's the genius of Christ and the Spirit and the difference when God takes a hold of a man. When the Holy Ghost is poured out and the ordinary becomes extraordinary, they're still the same people. And they, 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 they took knowledge of them. They're just they're unlearned, ignorant men, but they take knowledge that they had been with Jesus. There's, there's this mark, this distinction. They've been with the incarnate God. And they're not like others. Never let anyone say, never allow the argument ever to arise in your mind that you are not able to do whatever it is you feel is being pressed upon your heart. Because if God is leading you into something, God's hand is upon you in that, and doors are being opened, and there's, there's, there's those that are recognizing that, even in, in leadership or around your life where there's a sense in which Someone can detect that there's, there's something that, that is going on in your life in whatever direction it might be. I don't want to get too specific. But I, I can't help but, but be drawn into the, 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 the need for the ministry and how at times the ministry as its office is so elevated that people are utterly petrified to ever consider it. And while I'm not against that, in one sense I have been there and trembled be not many masters, James 3.1. I've trembled over that verse more times than I care to remember. But when God's hand is on you, when God's pressing upon your soul, when He's leading in that way, the greater folly is to say no. None of us are up to the task. doesn't matter who we are. doesn't matter our training doesn't matter a jot about our past, really. None of us are up to the task. The Lord takes ordinary men. That brings us then, secondly, to consider the men that were appointed. Not just the master that appointed them, but the men that were appointed. These are the men of whom we are told, at least we can, I think we can apply it, because it seems to be more general than just Paul and Silas, but in Acts 17 where it says about those that have turned the world upside down. Turning the world upside down. <sighs> These ordinary men, they had given themselves to be disciples. That was a lowly position. But Christ appoints twelve to the office of the apostleship, and that was not a lowly position. The office of an apostle to receive such a call to that office was to receive a call to be burdened with the authority of the one that sent them. Christ assigns to these men His authority and sends them out. And we are given a list of them. Verse 13, When it was day, He called unto Him His disciples, and of them He chose twelve. I don't know how He did it. I'm not sure how He set it up. But He sovereignly appoints them, and He names them apostles. They understand there's something different here. They're having a a weight, a sense of an ordination is happening. And the first upon the list, as always in the list of the apostles, is Simon. And we also named Peter. 
Simon. This was the spokesman for the twelve, the one that always was willing to come and say something on any given occasion, most famously giving a clear confession to Christ's question when Christ asked, Whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 16, 16. He was willing to step forward and say, this is what we believe. A man of conviction. But he also at times misapplied that conviction. He foolishly thought he could stop Christ from going to Jerusalem and suffering at the hands of the religious leaders. And he said to him, again, Matthew 16, verse 22, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But Jesus turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Yes, even those who are the Lord's at times can be led by a satanic influence. Humbling. But he was the only one to step out into the water to walk to Jesus, Matthew 14. And the only one to throw himself into the water to swim to Jesus, John 21. He's a man of energy, a man of zeal, a man of passion. He was the one who boasted of being willing to die for Christ, but ended up denying him three times. And Christ had to come and address him. Three separate, three separate questions. Lovest thou me? Peter. Are there Peters here tonight? Probably. The bold, the brash, those that act and think later, those that at times are up and down, maybe at times more down than up. Even way later on we read of him, this bold, courageous man, crumbling the sight of the Jews that came from Jerusalem and moving himself away from the Gentiles, lest they should see him eat with them. Paul says, you're denying the gospel. Then we have, we are told here, of Andrew, his brother. Andrew, his brother. Some people get known not by who they are, but by who they're related to. You know, that's the son of so-and-so. That's the, the, the wife of such-and-such. Such. That's kind of how you get known, because there's some other more significant character within the connection. Well, that was a little bit like Andrew. Even though he was the one who really led the way, he was the one who, who brought his brother Peter to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, on the couple of occasions that we get a little insight into Andrew, this is what we find him doing. He is, he is bringing others to Jesus. That's a good testimony. If that's all that's said about you, there's not much said, but what's said seems to indicate that this is your goal, this is your desire. You just want to get people to the Lord Jesus. That's a good way to live. <laughs> then we have James and John, the sons of Zebedee, also known as the sons of thunder. At times these men are portrayed as as aggressive men who are ruthless, ready to pray down fire from heaven upon the souls of men. And yet on other occasions, you kind of wonder, you kind of wonder about the, just how, how manly they are whenever their mother comes and asks in Matthew 20, grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. Had, had they been talking with her? And she kind of takes the initiative and says, well, I'll ask for you. I, I'm not sure all the background there, but yeah, kind of embarrassing to see your mother come in in that way. But so it was for them. But their courage would be proved. James would be the first martyred apostle. Referred to it this morning, Acts 12. The first one to go through that experience in terms of one of the apostles. Yes, they had, Stephen had already gone through the experience. Perhaps others unmentioned. But here is James, one of the apostles 
And he has to lay down his life. The first of the twelve to be martyred. John also had to show his courage in a different way, but he was to suffer tremendous persecution and then exile on the Isle of Patmos. And long after everyone else is gone, John's still there laboring and seeking to serve the church. That's the case for some of us, you know. Some will be cut short in their lives, their service for Christ. Others will live a long, long service for the Lord. Who's in control? <laughs> was, there, was there something less about James who died years before his brother John? The Lord knows what He's doing with us all. He knows exactly the best way in which we can serve Him and glorify Him and how that prayer that we have, that we would glorify the Lord no matter whether it is in life or in death, that is fulfilled in different ways by the appointment of our God. Then we have Philip. Philip. Like Andrew, he doesn't receive much attention. And he appears to have his ups and downs like many. He begins very strongly. In John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And that, that's a very strong beginning. We have found, there's, there's a real sense of conviction there. Conviction is a personal conviction, but such is the strength of that conviction, he's sharing it. We have found him, he asserts. But in spite of this, he would ask shortly before the crucifixion, John 14, verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. So in one sense, he, re he really knew who Jesus was. And in another sense, even after three years or so, being in the presence of the Lord, he didn't fully get it. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. So he begins quickly. He, he grasps the fundamentals rapidly, but he fails to grow in advance. And he's struggling at the end to, he's seeking for something more, and yet all the time it has been before him. And then we have Bartholomew mentioned to us, the end of verse 14, also known as Nathaniel, the one that was reached by Philip. The only meaningful account of him is given in John 1. In fact, we may go back there and just, just see that because it's, it's interesting what John records about uh, Nathaniel or Bartholomew. Verse 45, John 1 verse 45 read over what we read already. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? And when someone puts out a question that isn't really seeking for a legitimate answer, be wise. You know what Philip says, instead of getting into the debate, he said, Come and see. Come and see. You know whenever you get into discussion with lost people and they start throwing questions at you and you're ready to get into this whole big debate about various aspects of, say, God's Word. And they're saying, well, what about this and what about that? Instead, just look. Come and see. Or go and see. Give them a Bible. Say, look, if you really want the answers, they're there. Does it not, is it not worth your time to read the Word of God for yourself and you just push them to the truth, to the source of truth? You don't spend your time debating about it when you have an opportunity to just direct right to the source itself. And this is the, the importance then even of, of using Scripture, utilizing Scripture. Discussing this re recently. With those who are involved with generations. The, the, the emphasis, the, the importance of Scripture 
and using Scripture and driving home the importance of Scripture and getting people back to Scripture. When, my, when one of my uncles was converted and he was, he was saved, and they were totally separate experiences. It's a remarkable story that I don't have time to really flesh out tonight, but unrelated events, detached my uncle, my mom's brother, and my mother were saved within a week of each other in an unrelated way. The only way of understanding it is because there was a concentration of prayer going up for the family at that, at that time. And with a concentration of prayer, God was answering in ways that were completely detached. And when my uncle was saved, he had separated for a time from us from a nine-year relationship with a Roman Catholic girl. And he had just separated from her, and then he was saved. And when he went to her, he told her that the Lord had saved him, but he simply said, look, here's a copy of God's Word. Please read it. That's all he did. He encouraged her to read the Scriptures. And about, I want to say less than two months, maybe six weeks or so from my memory, she was saved as well, reading the Scriptures, reading it for herself. Very, very tough task to get a Roman Catholic to walk into a free Presbyterian church in Northern Ireland. It's not an easy thing to do. So just instead of that, just, just read, just come and see. Come and see. Beloved, we have to regain a sense of, of faith in the power of the Word. That this is the weapon God has given. And rather than, than languishing in a sense of despair or, or trying so hard to find the perfect arguments, to depend and, and before God our hearts are reflecting before God, Lord, we believe in the power of Your Word. That's where we're resting. That's what we depend upon. The Word will do the work. As the Spirit takes the Word of God, the church of Jesus Christ will be built. Souls will be saved. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. What? What a testimony. This is Nathanael. So he responds, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. We are then brought in the record of these men to see Matthew, verse 15. Matthew, we've already considered, I guess, the tax collector. The mercy of the Lord upon his life. Maybe best we don't elaborate any more there. And then Thomas. Thomas. He appears a few times. Doubting Thomas, as people like to call him. I think it's a little overplayed. A little. Yes, there are certainly seasons of doubt within Thomas. But when you read John 11, I think, it, I think if I'm understanding John 11 correctly, it seems a little unfair. Because if you read John 11... We are told there, and this is where tension's rising, and there's, there's, there's a real danger for Jesus Christ to go to Jerusalem. We're told in John 11, Then after that saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. In verse 8, His disciples said unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? And you move on down later in the narrative, and we are told what Thomas said. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, Unto his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. 
So the bulk of the disciples are arguing, Lord, do you really want to go there? Do you want to enter into that place where they're watching and waiting for you? When there's already evidence that they're going to put you to death, are, are, you, are, you, are you serious? And they're, they're looking for ways out. And, and Thomas, though there's an element of pessimism in it perhaps, yet he's, he, there's a willingness here, isn't there? Let us also go that we may die with him. There's at least an element of, of courage within his heart, doubting or not. Then when he watches the Lord die, when he is aware of the death of the Lord, he is so discouraged he can't bring himself to stay with the disciples. These are ordinary men. Have you ever been so discouraged you don't even want to be among God's people? Have you ever gone through something that's caused you to withdraw? These are the kind of people that Christ appoints to lead in the church. These people. These people who get times when they don't want to go to church on Sunday. They want to withdraw. They're so discouraged. They're so downhearted. There's something going on in their life that just causes them to, to lack the energy or the interest to do what normally they would do. And Christ is so gracious to him. He, I mean, he, he lets him marinate in it. I like that. He doesn't just run to him. You know, he, he's meant to be there that first Lord's Day, that evening when the Lord meets with the rest of them. And he's missing. And the disciples go, as you know the account in John 20, they, they go to him, Thomas, Thomas, come on. He, he, and he won't believe. And if I, if I, don't, if I don't touch the wounds... I won't believe. And so he's left to, to ponder that for an entire week. The Lord doesn't meet with him. The risen Christ doesn't go graciously to meet with him alone, as he does with some of the others. No, no, he just, just lets him be there alone for the rest of the week until he's where he should have been in the first place. The next Lord's Day, with the rest of the disciples, and right there, he makes a beeline to Thomas. Go ahead, Thomas. My Lord and my God. These weak men chosen by Christ. There are a number then that are listed that we basically know nothing about. James, the son of Alphaeus. Simon called Zelotes, the zealot, or Simon the Canaanite. That's, his name is all we really know about him. He was a zealot. He was someone who was, who was given over to try and to pull down the Roman Empire, remove its influence from his country, from his territory. And, and you think about that for a minute. You think about, <laughs> here's Matthew propping up. The Roman Empire with tax collection, he's propping it up. He's, he's the enemy. And Christ says, I'll take you, Matthew. Oh, and I'll take you, the zealot, who's attacking people like this, who wants to put to death people like this, or whatever way you can, drive them out. And he pulls them together. Do you ever think, what, what was going on there? When they first met, was there, was there a possibility that they squabbled over things, that they debated some things, and they are... And I thought about that. I thought about how they had to come together and Christ had to pull them together. And at some point, they had to have this resolve. By whatever thing, they just had to, they're going to work together in spite of each other's past and especially on the side of Matthew. That the primary thing is the gospel, not politics. I'm not saying politics does not play a part in the Christian life and Christian living. Of course it does. They are the ministers of God. And we should have a distinct interest in what kind of characters take the roles and offices that God has appointed in the land. 
But deliverance and salvation is not by politics. We are not primarily given over to a political agenda. And our hope is much more eternal than it is temporal. And we preach the gospel. And that's what these men needed to give themselves to. Their, their lives have been given over to this cause. Now they're being pulled together to the same cause. And they need to understand this is the priority. The preaching of Jesus Christ. And you have Judas, the brother of James, also called Thaddeus. Again, another we don't know much about. And then we come to Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. The traitor. Or the thief. Jesus said of him in John 6, 70, have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? When he watched Mary give that alabaster box of ointment, there she was, that alabaster box of ointment, very precious. And she gives it over to Christ. And there's the disciples all standing around. And Judas is the first, the first to instigate the ripples of murmuring against her. This could have been sold for 300 pence and given to the poor. And we are told he said this not because he had an interest in the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the bag. And if you bring all the accounts together, you know what you find? It is immediately after that event when he saw this dear child of God sacrificing a very costly item to the Lord Jesus, when he saw that and he thought of his, his loss, I could have had a portion of that, that such was the covetous nature of his heart. Oh, it almost beggars belief if we don't fully grasp the depraved nature of men. It's seeing that in the covetous heart that dwelt within him. He says, I'm going to get my portion. And he immediately leaves that scene and he counsels with the religious leaders to betray Christ for 30 pieces of silver. This is Judas. Judas is a warning. I'm not going to get into all the different aspects and complexities of this man because Scripture does illuminate much about him. We'll consider him much later on. But at the very least, Judas is a warning. A very serious warning. He's a warning that humbles the minister to realize that ordination is not synonymous with genuine Christian experience. One may be set apart to ministry and have all the gifts and live in such a way that he's never even suspect. I'll be lost. Absolutely lost. Hiding a sin. Covertly contradicting the very message that he preaches. It is also a warning to any Christian. Any Christian who imagines they can relax from true Christian disciplines, that which reflects a real affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. Coming for worship is a Christian discipline. It's a good one. You forsake that, it becomes manifest. In all likelihood, you don't know the Lord. You never did. But it's common for people to not forsake assembling in this fashion. And to continue on, but to spend years of their lives never showing any real affection for Christ. This was Judas. Judas didn't love the Lord. 
He saw all the affection that came to him, the, the adoration of the other 11. I mean, he's surrounded by 11 devoted followers who've sacrificed everything, willing to do what they can for the Lord. And yes, they're far from perfect men. And, and maybe, that's, maybe that's how he silenced his own conscience because he compared their faults with his own. And he thought, well, look, there's Peter and, and Jesus calls him Satan. So, I mean, me stealing a little part here and there, maybe, you know, it's not such a big deal. I don't know what went on in his mind and how he justified a life following the Lord Jesus Christ for as long as he did without, never, without ever knowing the message that he preached. But he did. And this is where he challenges us and he warns us. You know, all these men are listed. Luke does not feel led to supplement really much in the way of detail about any of them except this one's the other's brother or so on. But to take time to outline, here's the traitor. Better the Lord says nothing about you than he has to say this. Is there a Judas here? Let me phrase it another way. Is there the same deception that existed in Judas within your heart? You're surrounded by followers of Jesus Christ. You do what they do. You appear to be interested in what they're interested in, but deep down, you don't know the first thing they know. You don't pray with any sense of fellowship with God. You don't read the Word with any interest in what it has to say. You don't apply the Word with any desire that your life might be shaped by it. You just drift on. Just drift, thinking everything is well. But you're lost. You're lost. Those three years Judas had, oh, they, they were so action-packed, event-filled. Every day was an adventure. But how quickly they passed by. How quickly one little sin, one tiny little thought, that first occasion when he decided, maybe I could just help myself to a little part of the offerings and the sacrifice of other people's giving to us. Just take a little bit for myself. And each time it became easier to take a little more. The bigger the offering, the more he could siphon off into his own pocket. And there the woman, think of it, we'll get to them and look, they're, they're ministering on to Christ of their substance. They're pouring out what they can. They, they're not going to be the preachers. They can't do the work Judas is involved with, but they minister on to Christ. And they do what they can, giving what they can to the Lord. And there's Judas, without any hesitation, siphoning off some for himself, for himself. Not interested in, in the, the, the fact that these, these people in good conscience are, are giving what they can. Are we surprised? Are there not those, God knows their hearts, but I would assume that there are some that truly know Christ, that sit before their televisions and watch the TV evangelists and think that they're giving something to God. And the whole time it's going into a nice new jet. 
a $200,000 Lamborghini or whatever. Is there a Judas? Is there any part of Judas in your heart? These are the men the Lord chose to the apostleship. These are the men the Lord set apart to carry on the kingdom after he was gone. With the exception of Judas, in spite of all of their faults, they actually did know the Lord. And the vast majority of you I believe, know the Lord. And I want you to be encouraged by the consideration of these individuals that they were just ordinary men. And they were despised by the world. And they were insignificant as far as others were concerned. And part of the wonder of it all is that with all the gift and all the teaching and all the rabbis and Pharisees and scribes, all all those that were there, that Christ could, if He had decided perhaps drawn close to and chosen for himself. But he ignored them all. He ignored them all because his strength is made perfect in weakness. Are we weak in the eyes of the world? Of course we are. Does that matter to Christ? Not at all. Beloved, when we gather on Wednesday evenings and you assemble before God to pray, all of divine omnipotence is there ready to be besought in the name of Jesus Christ. And it more than makes up for all of our deficiencies. May our gaze be filled with the glory of our God, the power of our Christ. May He take each one of you, each one of us, and empower us to serve Christ however He leads. Let's bow together in prayer. there's a concern within your soul you don't need my help you bring that concern directly to the Lord in prayer where you are you confess your sin you acknowledge your unbelief your waywardness maybe there's someone here just like Judas you've been a thief Maybe you've lived the life of a traitor, apparently being one of Christ's, but, but you'd betray him if the right offer came up, 30 pieces of silver or whatever it might be. You'd betray all Christian conviction for the right job. You'd betray all Christian conviction for the right relationship. You'd betray all Christian conviction for whatever it was that tickled your fancy and means more to you than the Son of God. The seed of the traitor is in your heart. Lord, we pray, deliver us from ourselves. As we look at Judas, we are humbled and we are horrified. Lord, we see too much of him still in remnant form within ourselves. Deliver us, Lord. Give us a 
an affection and love for Christ that in no way can the unregenerate ever enjoy or know. We pray that thou wilt not make us to be so caught up with our own weaknesses that we avoid drawing strength from thee our God. Help us to follow the example of our Lord Jesus who took time to get alone to pray, to receive direction, to know help, to know power and strength. Teach us to pray. And then bless us in our service. Lord, put thy hand upon every Christian life here tonight. Give each one a holy zeal to serve the Lord Jesus, to make much of the Lord Jesus. And by their lives, just to preach Him, both in conduct and in conversation. Go with us then. Bless the time of fellowship at the close of this meeting. Be with those who go downstairs. Bless the food that's provided. And go with us to our homes. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.